Hi, I'm Ash Taylor, and welcome to the latest episode of Hitting the Wall podcast. In this podcast, I interview business owners about specific walls they have faced and how they overcame them, digging into the mindset of what's involved to run a successful business on your terms. Growing a business can be one hurdle after another, so why wait to make mistakes when you can learn from others first? In this week's episode, we meet Ash Smith. Ash is a coach, consultant, and speaker with over 20 years' experience of helping people make permanent behavior changes. He's worked with some of the world's best practitioners in performance psychology and leadership, working towards his philosophy of building adaptable experts, people who can think on their feet and deliver under pressure. Listen in to find out more about this philosophy and how it could help you in your business. Hey Ash, how are you mate? Ash, good to be here. Very excited to have a little chat and see where we go. Good, hopefully our voices are different enough that people won't get confused, <laughs> Ash, because that could be quite entertaining. Yeah, I, I, I could look like the smart me. one. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> I'll be changed. So uh, um, uh, we talked about this off air. I mean, there's so many different directions that we could, we could go with this conversation. Um, thank you for coming on, obviously. Um, uh, I wanted to get you here because of your experience and because of the different type uh, of work you've done, because we've got quite similar backgrounds, you know, spent a lot of time in tennis, working with players. Um, you've probably focused a little bit more on the kind of cutting edge performance elite side. I've, I've just kicked newbies around the court a hell of a lot more and, <laughs> and seen where it's taken them but there, I think there's some there's some interesting parallels um that, that might come out of this so do you want to let's let's I'll tell you, the best place to start I think is always at the beginning so do you want to just sort of take take us back not necessarily to your childhood but where you know where where does this your love for tennis start that, that would be a good place I think yeah I think I mean it, it ultimately started probably where a lot of people started. I imagine your journey was quite similar. Somebody rocked up to my primary school one day when I was five or something and went, this is tennis. We had a little go and I went, this is pretty okay. I could get on board with this. Um, and I was even from an early age, like my dad was very sporty. He played a lot of cricket, badminton, tennis, you know, all sorts of things, set football. So, you know, we were always playing around with bats and balls and stuff in the garden. So it just kind of, it kind of went from there really. It, it sat and fell nicely at the right time. And I started going to a few little lessons after school and then gradually got a bit bigger and a bit better and got invited to go to a different session, which was, you know, for better, better kids or yeah. there for those who are listening. Um, Cause I was never <laughs> that great. Um, and, you know, like every kid at that age, I kind of thought I'm going to do this. This is going to be my career. I'm going to make, I'm going to be the next professional player. And I got to about 12, 13, maybe. And I went, I'm not going to be a professional tennis player. This is ridiculous because, you know, for, for those who aren't aware it's, it's a frighteningly difficult world to break into. Mm. Um, you know, the, the top 100 players in the world are the ones who make a little bit of money, you know, make a profit. And I think there's on average one change in the top 100 every year. Yes, yeah, it's, it's once you're in, you're in. And so, yeah, in so is hard. One, yeah, one new player breaks into the top 100 every year and one drops out. So making a living out of tennis is, is phenomenally difficult. And it was around that kind of time that I started to do a little bit of assisting and helping my coach deliver some, you know, lessons for little teeny tiny people, I kind of realized I got more satisfaction from helping others than I did from performing myself. And it was this sort of a revelation because at 12, 13 years old, it's pretty a bit young to be having revelations about stuff. But it did make me kind of go, okay, this is, yeah, this is, maybe this is how I can do this. Maybe this is how I can scratch that itch. But actually it's more fun seeing other people get better than it is getting better myself. Um, and now I look back at 39 or however old I am. Um, <laughs> let's a, not go a, Yeah, no, let's not, exactly. There's a sort of common thread that, that runs through it. And I go, well, actually, everything I do and everything I've done has been actually about helping other people. So even like one of my hobbies is, you, you know, is photography. Mm. Well, actually, what I find now is that I do photography training and I do photography talks for camera clubs and universities and again that comes back that's still helping other people get better at photography so it doesn't seem to matter which avenue I find myself going down it, it's always about helping other people get better more so than, than getting better myself so that that's where I've sort of arrived at with what I do today I, I think there's some really interesting parallels there because I started playing 
uh, I didn't have that primary school introduction other than our hour on our bikes every day in, in the playground kind of thing when I was at school in the in the 70s that's why I said we shouldn't go there um, but yeah I mean I started kind of maybe 10 or 11 and but my my journey into coaching was at a very similar age yeah, sort of 12 13 I was assisting my coach and went through very much the same gamut of emotions and realization that actually I'm never going to be a tennis player you know, I'll be able to play tennis, but I'll never be able to call myself a tennis player. <laughs> and, and, and there's a big difference. I'm realizing that with my golf now. I'm not a golfer, <laughs> but I can play golf. <laughs> and yeah, and then, and then and that path then kind of takes you to some interesting places. I mean, I, I coached full time for Lord knows how long, 23 odd years or whatever it was. And, you know, was in and around the game and worked for the LTA in a different capacity to you, but obviously was there when Jane Stewart was around and, you know, I had her on this podcast not that long ago. So how was your, how, when you decided or was there a moment in which you went, oh, okay, well, coaching is something I enjoy. So how, how do I do this as a career? Or was there stepping stones in between? No, do you know what? It, I just kind of fell into it, to be perfectly honest. Um, although I knew I enjoyed doing it and I was, I was doing it a little bit. I was still at that time sort of considering arty farty creativity as well. Um, and I was sort of considering a career and going like design, graphic design, that kind of thing. Um, and it was purely through a, a chance meeting with actually, well, not chance meeting, but a meeting with um, somebody you probably know very well, Christine Rivers. Yes. Yeah, so you know, Chris. So um, I was just a member of a, a tiny little village tennis club and I went to meet her to kind of go, look, I want to do something a little bit more at this tennis club, but it needs a bit of help what can you, you know, what, what can we do? And she said, yeah, 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 that's great. Never mind that. We've got this new indoor tennis center opening in Gloucester in a couple of months time. Um, I want you there to be like coaching on the opening night. I was like, yeah, but that thing I was talking about <laughs> with the club, she went, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll worry about that later. Um, can you be there on, I was concerned with it. it was, I think it was the 13th of January, uh, like 2001, maybe? It was in that kind of ballpark. Um, so I was like, oh, well, yes, okay, I can do that. <laughs> um, and then it just sort of went from there, really. And it, it just sort of, it grew. And that that became a, a regular Saturday morning. Um, and then from there, it became a regular seven days a week, as these things do. Well, yeah, they, as they do. It kind of goes from a couple of hours to having a couple of hours free, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly how it was. Um, and that was it. So I, I was at that tennis centre for... Five years, six years? When did I leave there? Yeah, so five or six years, along with doing um, work for the, the county association, doing, you know, county performance squads and doing other club stuff and fun days, all the usual stuff that, yeah. that coaches do when they're sort of kind of going, okay, this so this is a career now, is it? Okay. Um, so much to my university lecturer's disgust, I spent far more time on a tennis court than I did in the lecture hall, um, but did, did come out of it with a degree in the end, so that was cool. Um, and then I've used it three times since. So perfect. <laughs> On CVs. <laughs> Absolutely. That's it. Yeah, exactly. uh, and so your, what was your degree in? Was it graphic design? Graphic design. Yeah, it's graphic design. Excellent. Yeah, highly relevant. Yeah. So can, 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 good for making flyers for the tennis club. Yeah. And, and obviously you're, that's where your love of photography comes from. Yeah. Well, comes absolutely. From, yeah. It links in as yeah, well. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. It, it ties in. It, it sort of, again, it's, I use the term earlier on it. It scratches that creative itch. Hmm. In that I still get to do stuff, and you know, on one of my Instagram profiles, I'm I don't really like this, but I'm sort of you know a digital artist um, because I you know do a lot of sort of photography collage kind of work, and you know I sell a few prints and stuff just for a bit of a if there if there is such a thing as a side hustle for me, that's it because I have many side hustles. So where did your because what I wanted to really explore, I think, is at some point along this journey, and I'm I'm very aware it could be quite reasonably recent. Or, you know, and I'd be curious to know when when this itch needed um, scratching. You got, and I could be making a presumption here, but you got quite interested in how how people tick, I guess. You know, yeah. and, and and was that through um, wanting to get the best out of your athletes? Um, you know, researching performance habits and behaviours and the way that people uh, form. Um, form those habits etc or did you sort of fall into that as well because you know for, for me you're someone who has a, if, if not a depth certainly a breadth of knowledge around um, maybe a depth as well <laughs> around around how the mind works and you know what came first I suppose was it you know was it 
because of the sport or because did you apply it to sport because you, you picked up the knowledge? No, I, I think I think it was bred through being involved in, in that world. And, and the more sort of my career ends up went through and the more I started working with better players in kind of, I guess, higher pressure environments, mm-hmm. um, it kind of made me go, ah, oh, there's something else here. Because everyone, you know, in those environments, you know, we see it even in professional sports, they like everyone at that level can hit a good tennis ball. Yeah. Everybody in the Premiership is a good footballer. Yeah. As much as we take them, oh, that player's rubbish, blah, blah. It's like, no, they're not. They're a full-time professional footballer for a Premier Division club or whatever. There's a reason for that. <laughs> exactly. They, they don't just get there by accident. They don't just fall into that, you know, on a, from, they don't fall from Sunday League to Premiership, like, overnight. So they're all really good. So I kind of started to go, well, why are some of them just better? And yes, there may be technical or tactical bits and pieces that make a difference, but... What's the real difference maker in, in, in those people? Why are they the ones that keep, why do they keep winning basically was what yeah. it comes to. Why do they, no matter what you throw at them, find a way to not only survive, but thrive. Um, and, and that's where that kind of interest came from, I guess, because and early on in my career, I was, a lot of the coaches I saw and was experiencing were quite directive. Yeah. You need to go and do X to get Y. So I naturally kind of followed that path because you know, we are, we're all a product of our environment. So that was the environment I was in. So that was the way I started working. And then I kind of met a few different people along the journey who were very much the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, if we think of coaching as a spectrum from sort of directive at one end, telling, um, to kind of facilitating at the other end, which is kind of all about asking questions and helping athletes discover solutions to things. Um, and it kind of, oh, so there's a different way of doing this. So, okay, which is best? Because I think the thing ultimately it comes back to is I'm really curious about everything. I've definitely got some neurodiverse traits in that, in that aspect. I'd, I'd love to know how things work, why they work, why does, why does that happen? Um, the other night, we've, we've got a new log burner, and I went down a rabbit hole the other night on YouTube of how do you build the perfect fire? Yeah. But now I know all about building fires from bottom up, from top down, top down fires, the Scandinavian. So it's just this weird curiosity thing I have. I, I just love to know how. I've, I've done a lot, a lot of research on different axes and how to split wood effectively. There you go. So <laughs> Hours on YouTube. There yeah. you go. So we're in, a, we're in a similar boat for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was like, well, so how, why, why, why do these people, why do they get to perform under pressure? And if I'm working with an athlete and I'm always telling them what to do, specifically in tennis, because in tennis, I'm sure people are aware, as a coach, you're officially not allowed any input with your player whilst they're playing. So you're not allowed to coach from the sidelines. It's not like football or rugby where you can shout from the touchline and, and give instructions. That Once they cross the white line, they're on their own. Yeah. I kind of thought, well, if I'm always telling them what to do in practice, what do they do when I can't tell them what to do in a match? Um, and it, and, it, and it, really, it really struck home for me when I was chatting with uh, Nigel Redmond, who was former rugby coach was with the England development squads and such like and Worcester Warriors. And he said exactly that. If, if you want players to make good decisions under match pressure, why are you making decisions for them in easy training? I thought, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So yeah, so that, that sent me down this rabbit hole of going, okay, I, I need to understand one, how we learn. Because if I can find a way of helping people learn that develops permanent behavior changes, because ultimately that, for me, that's what coaching is. Coaching is helping someone make a permanent change in their behavior. Yeah. And hopefully it's positive. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's, that's the idea. Yeah, it? I mean, that, that is the idea. <laughs> so, so hopefully it's a positive change in their behavior, which is permanent. And, and it's robust. In other words, it can be performed when you really need it. Because I think oh, that, that's where a skill is important. The skill is when I really, really need this skill, whether it's a mental skill, a physical skill, a technical skill, and I deliver it when it really, really matters. And that's why when Roger Federer is serving 1540 down match points against, he can deliver the serve out wide that he needs. That's why when, when Tiger Woods was in his prime, when he was going down the 18th, one shot, you know, all square, possibly going into a playoff for a major, he could pull a chip shot from the rough into the, you know, within two feet of the pin. And it's, it's that that fascinates me. It's, it's that idea of when it really, really matters, how do we deliver those skills and why? And, and, I, and I think, you know, you, you made an interesting point about um, 
easy practice versus pressured performance and the danger of being directive is it makes the practice easy it makes the training easy and I, and I think that's something I learned as well is that when you put certainly kids into an environment where you allow them to think for themselves two things happen one it's very different to uh, the environment they're usually in say at school where it is quite dictatorial you know is directive and as soon as you say to them look you have the answers you've just got to work out what the right questions are they thrive and i and i i always remember working with a group of um i don't know they were red bulls or under eight and they probably it was a little performance squad development squad whatever you want to call it all sort of five probably five to seven years old um indoors badminton nets um proper mini tennis you know Foam, foam balls, you know, we, we didn't even have the outdoor balls, you know. And all I did was walk along. If you imagine the, the net between them, and I had some hoops, and I put the hoops down one pace away either side of the net. Okay. And I just said to them, right, pause for a moment. Um, if any of you can land the ball in the hoop on the first bounce, and your player on the other side doesn't get it, you win the game. And you could see them, and they're all loading these balls with huge amounts of topspin. The ball's going miles over the nets, nice and safe. And I remember this one kid, this one kid, and he just, I could see him just looking at the way everybody, and he just stopped and he's looking around. And suddenly he went, and, I, and I'm doing this visually, I'm aware no one's going to watch this, but <laughs> he suddenly took the ball, you know, took his racket from neck down to sort of ankles in a sort of J shape. You know, a nice slice. We we you know we would have that nice deep cutting slice, and he tried it, and it landed in 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 the hoop, and he won the game. And then suddenly, all the kids started looking at Joseph. I remember it was, uh, <laughs> and and going, how did he do that? And so he went over to the kid next to him and said, "I'll start him and do that." And they started teaching each other, and they started working with each other. And before you know it, it was like game game points rather than points within the game because they were all hitting the perfect drop shot. I didn't show them that technique. I didn't help them develop that skill. I just laid down the challenge and let them work it out. And because I'd not told them what to do, and it was hilarious because the next time we played a match at another club, there were a number of drop shot points that were won. <laughs> well, I guess, I'm guess what I'm getting to is that I guess that's an example of the difference between if I told them how to do it, I would have told that one player how to do it. And, and the difference is, is that they all, I think people, you talked right at the beginning about people like help, you know, you like helping people. I think everybody likes helping each other. And if you create an environment where that happens, people thrive. Yeah, 100%. And the, and the key word you used there was, was environment. Because I, again, I think we, you know, we said it earlier on, we, we're all a product of our environment. Mm. We're all a product of the people we spend the most time with. We're all a product of the environments in which we operate. And so if we can create environments where it's okay to share and it's okay to learn. And I know you talked a lot in your uh, conversation with Jane. Um, it's okay to fail. Mm. Uh, this is really important. And again, and, and in sport and in business, you know, and I know you guys talked about it at length, so we, we won't cover it again, but, but giving yourself or the people you're working with the freedom to fail, but fail with good intention. Yes. Is really important. And I think that's a really important distinction is it's not okay just to screw up because you don't care but it is okay to screw up with good intentions. Deliberate failure. A lot of work. I'm fascinated at the moment by leadership. Uh, and I'm writing a, a course on leadership at the moment and interviewing um, for the course, you know, a lot of people from military leadership, sports leadership um, and things like that. And, and I think that that's one of those principles that I keep coming back to is going, yeah, as a leader, it's okay. You need to give your people freedom to fail, but fail with intent. They're failing because they're trying something that they've deliberately spent time considering and not just because they're throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping something might stick like that. That's a big difference when it comes to freedom to fail, but it's an important, it's an important part of that environment for, for personal development. Yeah, I think you're, you're hundred percent right. And that, that's a different rabbit hole. We could go down that way, couldn't we, on, on the whole leadership thing. So when, when I heard you at, at a talk uh, reasonably recently, and I think there are a couple of things in there that, um, you you talked about in terms of managing your mindset and that that difference between um, our sort of uh, 
lizard brain chimp behavior and our our ability to um, respond to situations and I, and I think I bring this up because um, you know we're in a situation at the moment you know recording this in the second lockdown I, I haven't banged on about lockdown very much in this podcast because there are lots of people doing podcasts around lockdown and I don't need yeah. to add to it but it's been fascinating as a sort of um, kind of as, from a social observation perspective watching how different people have uh, responded or reacted to the situation that we've been in over the last several months I'd be interested to pick your brains in terms of your observations have been about how people have performed under pressure and in a different kind of environment that they're used to yeah absolutely and I think and I love the phrase you used there which was responded or reacted because psychologically we tend to use those terms interchangeably and yet psychologically there's a huge difference between the two so a reaction is very much emotionally led spur of the moment kind of just in the now whereas a response is you know you would, you would say that a response was more considered more cognitive more logical you've had time um so the example i always use is road rage okay so we've all we've all been driving we've, we've had that kind of you know, moment where somebody, usually an Audi or BMW driver, cuts you up. And, <laughs> you and just lost, the, lost half your audience. Yeah, sorry, oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Business Clubhouse <laughs> listeners. Um, other, other brands are available to cut you up. Also. Um, and they cut you up. And in the moment, you are absolutely raging. You're effing and jeffing at the radio. You know, you're shouting, swearing, cursing. And it's, you know, you, the, the adrenaline just suddenly snaps. And then you continue your drive home and you get home and you speak to your partner, friends, whoever, and you go, oh, you're not going to believe this. On the way home, this muppet in this X, Y, and Z car cut me up on the motorway. What a blah, blah, blah. And then the next morning you get into the car and you drive to work and it, you've forgotten all about it. Yeah. It's not, it's just not a thing, right? So you've gone from like incandescent rage to mildly peeved to it's just not a thing anymore. And you've done that over the course of like 10, 12, 24 hours, whatever it is. So we all have the ability to go from reacting to responding. It's just, it's innate. It's what, it's what we can do. Yeah. The difference is whether we choose to. And I think in situations like this, and when we're under pressure, because we're like, there's a really interesting, I don't want to go too neuroscience but there's some really interesting research that when you ask a room of people, um, put your hand up if you think you're a logical person. 80%, 90%, 100% of the room will go, yeah, I'm a logical person. They go, okay, who thinks, who thinks they make rational decisions? They go, yeah, of course I make rational decisions. Everyone puts their hand up. And you go, well, you're all wrong because you are driven emotionally. So logic is what we use to justify decisions we made with emotion. Yeah. Um, and then there's the, the neuroscience backs it up. Like, I don't want to go too into so but effectively the, the bits of your brain that light up when you are thinking emotion, when you're emotional, are so much more kind of, uh, they take up so much greater mass in your brain than those that light up when you're being logical. Okay, so, the, so the difference, basically, it's, it, the emotional center is more powerful, um, which is probably the layman's term way of explaining it. It's, it's a more powerful section of the brain than the logical one. So it, it has to be to protect us. That's exactly what it's for. It's exactly that. It's to keep us safe. So when you have those negative thoughts, when you have that imposter syndrome, when you have that kind of that feeling of butterflies that, that stems up, it's like, that's good. That's your brain doing its job. Mm. It's just trying to keep you safe. What you then have to do is, is look at that and go, okay, my, my logical brain is going to override that. Because actually, if I stand up, let's say I'd stand up and give this talk and it goes wrong, the world isn't going to end. Okay, my partner hopefully isn't going to leave me because I did such a terrible job of delivering a speech. <laughs> so then you then you kind of start to rationalize it logically and go, okay, actually the worst that could happen is that the audience goes, he was a bit naff. Okay, maybe they maybe it was the wrong audience, maybe it was the wrong topic, whatever. So that you can you can then rationalize it after. So our job is to go from react to respond as quickly as possible. Now you're a golfer on the golf course. Well, I'm, I'm somebody who plays golf. I wouldn't call myself a golfer. Okay. Good, good distinction. So as someone who plays golf, you, you hit a duff drive off the second tee. You probably, I don't know, I don't know how far you drive, 250, 300 yards to go from reacting to responding. 
And that's the difference for me. That seems to be the big driver, the difference between the elite and the super elite is the speed at which they can go from, choose to go from react to respond. Because if you get to your second shot and you're still in react mode, because you can't believe you spent all that money on lessons and you just slice the drive into the trees. You've been, you've been watching me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sent me a video, right? Like, what a waste of time and effort and money. Why am I bothering? I could be doing something else. Yeah. And what happens with the next shot? Same again. Or you try and, or you try and fix something that's unfixable because it's already, it's already done. Absolutely. So you then exert conscious control over an action that should be autonomous in your swing or you're losing focus and the ball squirts off into the trees and then the whole thing spirals. So the super elite can go, okay, that was crap. Park it and go again. And I think that's what we've seen people really find tricky during this, this sort of second lockdown period, especially is, or even with the first one to an extent, there was no cutoff period. Mm -hmm. There was no 200 yard walk to the next shot to reframe my thoughts because it didn't have an end. And I didn't know when it was going to end. So because there was no finite point in which I could go, I just have to keep putting one foot in front of another until I get to X. It got really, really tricky for people. Um, and this one's possibly been a little bit different because we've all been promised it'll end next week. And There's uh, we'll still a little bit of uncertainty. Yes, as there is. But yeah. It, it, I, mean, I feel like it might be like the DFS sale where it ends on Friday and a new sale starts on Monday. Monday. Um, but we'll, we'll wait and see. So I think, I think that's one thing where, where people have struggled. I think the other thing is there's been a lot of weird pressure on people that they should be using this period to do something constructive. And I think the word should is very psychologically dangerous. Could is a much better one. Could is great. Could, could inspires kind of hope and, and possibility, but it also doesn't matter if it's not. Whereas should, you know, actually you should be hitting the ball straight off the tee because you've invested all this time and money in having golf lessons and practice, et cetera. You should be doing it. You go, well, hang on, why, why should I? Like, there's a million and one things that could happen. Like, if my golf, if the club face is one degree off, that's, like, that's like a 30 foot difference in where the ball's gonna land. Yeah. So there's, I can't exert that fine motor. Phil Mickelson can't drive straight and he's one of the best golfers in the world. So, so I think the idea of this, you should be using lockdown to educate yourself, to read a book a day, to do, it's like, no, 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 no. Your job is to survive. Your job at the moment is to survive. And if you can thrive, and if you can find 10 minutes a day to meditate or five minutes a day to just sit and have a coffee and think about things that you're really grateful for, that's awesome. Like, that's a great effort. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the big one for me, again, it's that lack of knowing when it ends because it makes it really hard to respond and not just keep reacting. And I think just picking you up on your wording there, um, not in a negative way, but the word should creates emotional tension. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it can lead to a reactive, uh, it can lead to a reaction because you've not delivered on that should. And I think that's the danger, isn't it? And, and yeah. whereas could, leads to a response where, well, I could have done that, but I chose not to. Whereas as soon as you're saying, I, oh, I should have done that, oh, why didn't I do it? And it immediately, for me, it immediately is almost um, preconditioning what, the, what the, either the response or the reaction is going to be uh, at, at, the, at the end point. And I think that, that's, a, that's quite a fascinating thing, actually, that you can actually preframe what, how somebody's going to respond by the way that you, you set it up in the first yeah. place. Hundred percent, and I, it, it comes back to the idea that as, as human beings, we think in words and pictures, and so you plant. It's like a seed. Once you plant it, it takes root and then it grows. So if you plant that word in your head, should for example, it could be any you know, any any word yeah. or phrase. Yeah. But if you plant it, it grows. It takes root. It gets bigger and stronger, and Can't. over time, it it kind of takes over, and so that then affects the way you feel, which affects the way you behave. It's this kind of ever, ever running loop. Thoughts leads to feelings, leads to behaviors. Yep. The feelings are important because we know, like we said earlier, we're very emotional creatures. We, we, we operate on emotion first, logic later. So that kind of builds this feedback loop. And it, it's almost like, um, I think we talked about confirmation bias a little bit in the, in the talk that I did, with, we did. Uh, yeah. the other week, um, which is where you keep looking for evidence to prove that things you believe are true. And so it kind of feeds this confirmation bias loop where it's like, I thought a negative thing, 
felt bad. I behaved differently because I felt bad. See, I knew I was terrible. This goes on and on and on around the circle. So in order to, to, to behave differently, we need to think differently, which means we need to recognize that seed before it gets planted and change it for a different one. Um, and then that's where this idea of kind of reframing your thoughts, and that's how you move from responding, sorry, from reacting to responding. Responding. And, I, and I've, I've seen it with a number of people over the last several months that, you know, you know, I, I, I laid out a challenge, I guess, with, with many people, which was, you know, you've got an opportunity over the next, we all thought for some reason it was going to be three months first time around. So I think for some people there was this perceived endpoint. And, and we were quite careful to say there is an opportunity here. And if you can, what can you do to improve yourself, improve your business so that when, when you leave lockdown, it's in a better place. But if you can't, that's also okay. Yeah. Don't put yourself under, you know, ridiculous pressure. And, and, I, and I think, uh, yeah, that, that whole confirmation bias piece as well is, is really important because I, I see it all the time. I see, I work with people and many of my clients will almost tell themselves whatever it is that they're about to do won't happen because they've already told themselves it won't happen. And it, and it comes back to, because the, the, the thing that you've, you've maybe, I don't know if you've missed it or not, or we just, just didn't get into it, is, the, is the, the whole principle of the brain not seeing negatives. Yeah. So, you know, we go back to the, the golf analogy. Um, if you've got water in front of you and a, and, a, and, a, and a flag, you know, 130, 140 yards away, if you say don't hit it in the water, our brains haven't got time to deal with negatives. So all the only picture you see is the ball going in the water. Yeah, so can I, I'm going to jump in a little, so, so to unpick that a little bit for people, there, there's two, two really interesting things there. The first is that we, our brain is really good at catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. So it'll take a small thing and make it a really big thing. And again, it comes back to, it wants to keep us safe. Yeah. That's a cat, we, we it go, might be a saber-toothed tiger, run. We, we, we go out for a walk, you see a stick and your brain goes, snake. Yeah. <laughs> and the logical part of your brain goes, no, it's a stick. We know what sticks look like. And then your brain, then your body goes, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And then it suddenly drops. The, the second point which you made is fascinating. So it's not so much that the human brain doesn't recognize like the word don't. It's just that in order to deconstruct an idea, we first have to construct it. So in other words, when you, so to use your example, when you tell your brain, don't hit the ball in the water, in order to understand what not hitting it in the water looks like, it first has to picture what hitting it in the water does look like. And so therefore, that's the thing it takes away from your statement. Yes. You say, I say to you, don't think of a pink elephant. You in order to not think of a pink elephant, the first thing you have to do is picture what a pink elephant looks like. So the first thing that happens is, oh, pink elephant pink pops elephant. into your head. So, that, so that's, yeah, so that, that's where that comes from. It's, again, it's words and pictures. Because we think in words and pictures, when we, when we tell ourselves not to do something, the first thing we have to picture is what doing that thing would look like. And that's because, so I was going to just jump in quickly, no, no, no. Is, is, is that because, and I think I know the answer to this, that our, our, our ability to um, converse like this, articulate using, you know, verbal words and writing developed after our ability to construct pictures in our head. Yeah, I, I would imagine. I, I haven't looked into the evolutionary science of it, but I would imagine that's that's, that's the case, isn't it? Yeah, it, it seems it seems fairly logical, doesn't mm. it? That you know, it was we, we we developed kind of communication and language patterns long before we decided that it was a good idea to write them down. Yeah. And before we started writing them down, we drew them. Yes. You know, so that's, we so that's started drawing. We, first point of reference. We started drawing a picture of a tiger on the wall, and you know, in the cave, and when kids don't go near one of these. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, you know, that, that's, that's probably, where, again, it, it was an evolutionary safety thing. You look at all the pictures of things. They're either things that you could eat. You go back well, to things the, like, that could eat paintings. you. <laughs> exactly. You go back to like the cave paintings at Lascaux and stuff like that. And it's, you know, one of the earliest recorded human sort of drawings. It's like, yeah, they're things that are going to kill you or things that you'll keep you alive. Because those are our, that's our main, that was the main driver. Yeah, survival. Yeah. Is, is survival. Um so yes, I, I would imagine that's exactly where, where that came from. But yeah, so going back to your golf analogy of don't hit it in the water, better to think, knock it pin high. Yeah, hit it on the green. That's the I same gonna, with tennis, I, but I don't hit it in the net. On the green. Yeah, bang, straight in the bottom of the net. So yeah, so I, I think if we can, 
or if I can, you know, when I work, if I can help people just reframe things positively, it's a big start. And that doesn't mean that you have to be all tree hugging, hippie, you know, any of that. It's not like hippy dippy drippy stuff. No. It's just about accepting the fact that the thought you had was negative and then reframing it and going, well, yeah, that, that could happen. Because I think it's important to accept and acknowledge the fact that if I do this piece of marketing, though, it's just, it's, it's not going to work, is it because X? Well, that could happen. But equally, the opposite could be true. And you've spent a lot of time thinking it through and you've analyzed who your target market is and you've worked out what their problems might be and where you could position a solution. And unless you do it, you won't know. Never know. And so it's, it's a little bit like a, a cognitive behavioral therapy piece where you kind of go, well, if you didn't do it, what would happen? You go, as the, as the business owner, you go, well, nothing. You go, okay, cool. If you did do it and it failed, what? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so by not doing it, by doing it and it failing, you're still in the same position. But you've learned something. Possibly you've learned something. If you've done it and it's failed, there is the opportunity to learn and grow and develop from it. Yeah. So not doing it in that situation is not an option. Because not doing it, you don't get anywhere and you don't learn. Doing it and failing, you don't get anywhere, but you've got the opportunity to learn. Do it, it might work, in which case you develop either way. So, yeah, I, I think there's that, that idea of, of kind of reframing those negative thoughts and just kind of going, yeah, it could go badly wrong, but what if it goes right? Starts to it just starts to shift that thinking towards doing something is doing. I always talk to people like done is better than perfect. Yeah, because if you spend ages, yeah, if you think if you see ages seeking for perfection, you'll never get a thing done. So just do it, get it out there, and, and like the conversation you had with Jane, you know, just review it, reflect on it afterwards. And if it worked, reflect on it too, because we're terrible at reflecting on things that go really well. Mm. And you you probably found this in your time in sport. You know, if the, the first thing you do on a, on a Monday morning after a defeat on Sunday is watch the game tape. For a lot of those. <laughs> we, need to, we need to work out why it went wrong. Yes. What about you know, when you win? What did I do yeah. for it to go right? Yes. Because we must have done some good stuff. So how can we do that again? Can... It's, it's quite interesting because when we have our, um, our, our meetings, whether it's Mastermind, whether it's uh, Business Clubhouse Zoom calls, whether it's catch-ups, even our, even our team weekly meetings, I, I make everybody start with wins. And, you know, so we just go around the room and say, well, what have your wins been for the last week, two weeks, last time I saw you? And actually, the way that kind of frames the rest of the conversation yeah. is huge because you're starting on, you're, your starting point for the conversation is we've had some successes. Yeah. And, and, and immediately it shifts the conversation to, oh, woe is me, to, wow, I did this and how can I do it again? Yeah. And it changes everything. Absolutely. It's, it's, and it's a really, it's a really good, I talked a lot with business owners about kind of having winning conversations, which is, I think the last talk that, that you listened to that I gave. And it's a lot of that is about how you, how you use language to reframe either yours or other people's thoughts. So for example, if you say to me, ah, oh, you know, I'd love to invest in your um, weight loss coaching program, but I just don't have time to do it. If my response back to you is, oh, it's great that you'd love to invest, but it's a shame that you don't have time. Where do you then start your next phrase, your next sentence from? I don't have time. Yeah, you're right. It's terrible that I don't have time. Yeah, you're Whereas reinforcing I, it for me. Absolutely. If I feed it back to you and go, oh, yeah, I, I totally understand. You know, time pressures are tough, but it's amazing that you really want to focus on becoming healthier and fitter. That you then start, yeah. you start off and go, yeah, I really do want those things. And again, you you can so that you know that that's influencing someone else, but you can kind of play those own, those tricks on your own brain. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's talking to people about. I remember a conversation not that long ago, and we, we, he, his default was, "I can't do that. I can't do that." And you just add one word, yet, and it, and it, it changed everything for him. There you go. Good. Okay. So. Um, yeah, I, I got this guy I've been working with for a while, and you know, he, he, one of the things that he always says to himself is, "I can't do that." And we, we've got him to add one word, which is, you know, yet. Yeah. At, at the end of the at the end of that sentence, and it has changed everything for him. 
because he's like, okay, well, I can't do that yet. So what do I need to do to be able to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yeah. yeah, words are really, well, it's a conversation we could have for hours, but what, you know, this, the script in your head and, and how you shape it and what you say to yourself is, is so, so powerful. And it, yeah, it's only something that I, it, I think it is everything. I, and, it, and it comes down to, you know, coming full circle to earlier on in the conversation about what makes the difference between, you know, elite and ultra elite athletes. You know, there's a, there's a hundred tennis players in the world, one in, one out, you know, fundamentally. There are a half dozen, maybe, that win regularly-ish at the, at the very top end. They're the ones everybody aspires to be to. What's, what's the difference I suspect a large part of the difference is the story they tell themselves. Yeah, I, I think 100%. And also the, the timing of the story. Um, so there's a thing, have you ever heard of uh, the concept of mind blindness? Uh, I, I haven't in those terms, but I might okay, have so, it in a different way. So Go on. But mind blindness <clears throat> effectively describes the effect of adrenaline. So adrenaline is really good because it keeps us safe. right? So adrenaline basically uh, is a hormone which pushes all the blood to the extremities of the body so that we can run fast, fight hard, and get out of danger. Yeah. So when we start to feel stressed and anxious, the body, sig- the brain signals to go, mm, this could be tricky. Something's a bit, we need to be safe here. So it starts to dump adrenaline into the system. The more adrenaline that gets dumped into the system, more your system works. The heart beats faster to pump more blood around the body so that your muscles are ready to fight, flight, and whatever. But the downside of that is it forces the blood away from the bits of the brain that are really good at thinking. So up to, I think it's about 130 beats per minute. When your heart rate gets there through adrenaline alone, it shuts down 70% of the thinking bit of your brain. If it carries on and gets like 180 beats per minute, it shuts down 97% of the thinking bit of your brain. Wow. So, so you, so no, when you say, oh, he made really stupid decisions under pressure, like, yeah, like it's a physiological, it's a physiological response. You don't have any other option really. You can't make anything other than daft decisions because you've got nothing in here to think with. And it's so, not daft decisions, it's simple decisions. Or simple, it? any decisions. Binary, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the decisions to other people who are using logic, they go, well, that doesn't make sense. It's like, well, no, he can't because he hasn't got any thinking bits of his brain operating to do it with because, or she, they're so full of adrenaline. So I think that the big difference, that's why we, you know, we talk about players choking. You know, there are lots of reasons why people choke, but that, that's part of that process. Mm. Again, the sooner we can recognize that the seed that was planted wasn't helpful, and it's actually going to cause a negative emotional response. Sorry, that's not fair. I don't, the word negative emotion is not right because emotions are emotions. They're not negative or positive. They're just there. Just how you... Fun, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's an unfair statement for me. Yeah. They are a fundamental part of being human. It's the behavior that follows that can become negative. A negative by it takes you where you don't want to go. It's how you choose to apply the emotion to the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so yeah, so the, the sooner you can recognize that that thought could lead to a negative behavior, the sooner you can change it, and the sooner you can get back on the path that's going to lead you to those positive outcomes, whatever, whether that's sport, whether that's in business, in personal life, whatever. Yeah, I mean, there, there are very few situations or people, um, uh, people's behaviors where somebody has genuinely set out to get you you know there's there's you know it's, there's a lot there are a lot of people going oh you know this virus has completely you know changed my life and why did it happen to happen to me and all the rest of it well the virus didn't go oh there's ash smith let's see how i can wreck his life it's 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 just there it's about how and i appreciate it's, it's difficult and um the same thing applies to lots and lots of situations in the business you know whether it's losing a client or whatever people generally are not malicious yeah you know generally it's either an economic or an emotional personal emotional decision that's driving the situation and it's rare actually i'd like to think that people you know put somebody else's situation first and go well how can i go out to hurt them unless they're a true psychopath yeah generally that doesn't happen so stuff stuff rarely happens to us stuff happens we choose to perceive it as being applied to us and then that affects our ability to respond and therefore we react instead and that reaction can stay with us for a long time it can be a hell of a long walk to the next shot 
Yeah, 100%. And again, it's, you know, it, it's, it comes out, you, you've used the word choice a lot, and I think that's great. And I used to talk with, when I was working with kind of athletes at the, the professional level, is that, you know, you'd always hear athletes talk about the sacrifices they made to get to the top of the game. They chose. I, yeah, exactly. I sacrificed <coughs> going to the party. I sacrificed Christmas dinner to train. It's like, no, no, you chose those things. Yeah, you could have chosen you made a, You made a decision. You got on the treadmill. You could have chosen to get off again. Um, and I think that that's really, really important in, in, in that sense. Um, and yeah, so you can choose whether you keep feeding that reactive thought, you keep therefore feeding that negative feeling, which leads to more negative behaviors, or you can try and find a way to choose not to. And, and the very first thing is just being aware of it and accepting it. Awareness is everything. Yeah. Without like, the awareness, it's impossible to make change. Absolutely. You know, one of the big things with people who stop smoking is the just being aware of when you're picking up the cigarette packet can actually make you change your behavior. Yeah, just because then it up. becomes a choice rather than um, a trigger starting a habit loop. Absolutely. Um, so just, just being aware of those things first can be, you know, it's a huge first step. And then once you're aware, you can become accepting. And once you're accepting, you can start reframing. But you have to go through that process. You can't just, you know, people, oh, I've tried reframing my thoughts. It doesn't work. It's like, okay. Let's reframe that. And then we can go back to the beginning. We'll get you a different map. We'll get you a new sat nav and we'll go back to the beginning again. Um, so yeah, that, that's always, but yeah, it, it's not easy. It's like anything. It's a skill. Like people forget that mental skills are skills. You can't practice Like all them. skills, they need to be practiced and they need to be practiced in context. Yeah. Um, and if you practice them out of context, the transfer is tricky. And if you don't practice them, they don't get better. Um, it's it's not just something you're innate. Oh, he's so mentally tough. He was born mentally tough. No, he wasn't. Or she wasn't. Might, might have been in an environment that created mental toughness. Hundred percent. And and you know, people talk like resilience is a big deal at the moment. And I'm guilty of this. I you know, I talk to companies about being more resilient, organizationally or individually. And we talk about it like it's this magical concept. And then you look at it at its heart, and you go, everyone is resilient. Yeah. Everyone has shown some level of resilience to come back and do this again or something again. Something has gone wrong for just about everybody and they've overcome it and they've carried on. And you might not recognize that as resilience, but it, it all shapes to building your own level of resilience. Now there are ways and there are things we can do to help improve that and make you even more resilient, but it's not like this magical unicorn that only certain people get to ride. Like, you know, ev everyone has a level of resilience through, like you said, your environment, your experiences, um, the things you've done, the people you've met, the things you've seen. And, and often what happens, I think, I don't know, but I think people just take their level of resilience for granted. And it's, it's, it's very, you know, they, they forget that they have overcome things. They forget that their life has been a journey of hurdles and, 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 and not flat. But it's too easy to look at other people and go, oh, they've been through this, they've been through that, and they're stronger than I am, etc. And you forget your own. Because that's, I think that's also a natural thing to do is, is to compare upwards. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. A really simple thing to do. And, and again, you know, we, we can talk about this phrase, you know, comparison to other people is always dangerous. Mm. Um, and, you know, and again, it, it's very tricky. You know, so-and-so is doing so well in their career. They must be a better person than me. <laughs> no, <laughs> so it doesn't make them a better person. They might be a better business person than you. They might have more experience of doing the right things in the right places, or they might have more help than you or more practice, more failure. More practice. Exactly. That's it. You know, their, their journey is different. Um, and again, it sounds a little bit hippie, I know, but you know, that, that's the key. It's the stage of the journey that you are on. And as long as you're very, very clear on where you want to go, you know, you've got that vision, you've got that reason for doing it, which is kind of your why, what's my motivation? Why am I trying to get to the end of this, whatever my, the end of my journey is? And then the awareness along the way to kind of go, when do I need to ask for help? When do I need to, when do I need to go and see the business clubhouse and kind of go, okay, guys, actually, I'm a bit stuck here. Uh, like, give me, give me some steer, you know, wh wh who, when do I draw my support network? Yeah. Um, because, you know, no individual athlete gets to the top on their own. No. It's an individual sport, but there's like 20, there's probably 20 people <laughs> who are involved at any one time in getting that athlete to the top step of the podium. Um, so yeah, I think comparison to others can be very dangerous for us too. It's no, just, you know, make sure you're focused on your own journey, on your own map, um, and that you bring in the support you need to try and get you to where you want to go. 
one of my favorite ever sayings is comparison is the thief of joy yes very nice very nice actually i think we could talk all day mate Please, <laughs> all sorts of stuff we, we might have to come back and do this again another time do, do it again over a beer hopefully which absolutely would be, which would be really nice um if people want to reach out to you mate and and um pick your brain um how what's the easiest way you can uh best thing to do drop me a message to ash at pitch to inspire.co.uk um so pitch to inspire.co.uk yeah drop me a message um the big things you know that i'm sort of focusing on the moment like i said leadership is one um conversations is another so how to have and again that those two things go hand in hand right good great yep. leaders are able to have great conversations because that's again great leaders are coaches um so if that's something you, you want to have a chat about and explore let me know and obviously yeah men, mental strength mental skills again all those things kind of go hand in hand really it's all about kind of being being a more rounded person so yeah ash pitch to inspire.co.uk drop me a message let's have a chat excellent brilliant thank you so much for coming on giving up your time sharing your knowledge um i love these conversations i think <laughs> it there's always there's always a, a you know little knowledge bomb as you put it that, that somebody hopefully will, will pick out hopefully. of it and it'll be of use to them and that's what it's all you're about. most welcome it's been good fun cheers buddy no worries big soon <laughs> You've been listening to the Hitting the Wall podcast with me, Ash Taylor. This podcast is produced by the Business Clubhouse. The Business Clubhouse is a great community of business owners who share ideas, challenge and support each other to run better businesses for themselves and their families. If you'd like to grow your business surrounded by the right people and with the right tools to help, sign up for free at thebusinessclubhouse.co.uk.